Hello and welcome to Weight of Freight. In this content series, we explore the intricate yet powerful connections between the shipping and commodity markets. My name is Alex Yunovich and I'm the Global Head of Freight at Argus Media. And we're recording this on June 29, 2021. Crude oil prices have been treading the path of recovery. And despite some slowdown in the last couple of days, there is still persistent chatter in the market about oil prices uh, potentially coming back to $80 per barrel or even $100 per barrel uh, later this year. And today we'd like to explore what the rising price of oil means for the tanker freight. Is it a good or a bad thing for ton mile demand? and how the various factors like OPEC plus production uh, might affect this relationship between crude and vessels that carry it. And for that, I'm pleased to welcome a special guest, Arthur Rishier, who is the Senior Freight Analyst at Vortexfer. Hey, Arthur, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. By the way, I want to remind all our listeners uh, that if you're a subscriber to Argus Freight, you can download some of the graphs and data that we talk about here using the limited edition links on the podcast page. So now to it. Arthur, looking back at Argus historical data here, it would seem that high price of crude doesn't spell anything good for tankers. It's more of an inverted relationship, really. Uh, here I have in front of me a graph of the Middle East to Asia Pacific VLCC rate against the Dubai crude uh, price going back to 2010. And both when crude was hovering above $100 per barrel in the period of uh, 2011 to 2013, and more recently when it hit $80 per barrel in October 2018, the VLCC rates have been depressed. And the only time we saw a massive spike in freight was last year when the crude prices collapsed. So do you think we should expect this correlation to be different this time around? You're absolutely right, Alex. When the price of crude increases, it doesn't usually bode well for crude tanker rates. Now, why is it different this time? Well, on one hand, I tend to believe against popular wisdom that the past isn't set to repeat itself indefinitely. And I think our listeners can agree that this is especially true of shipping markets and tankers in particular with the last 15 to 18 months we've witnessed. Now, I agree this isn't the strongest line of argument. So let's look on the other hand what we have. Looking at Vortex of Flows data, we can see global crude loadings are up at their highest quarterly levels over the last quarter since Q2 of 2020. Now, this reflects strong recovering demand for crude, which in turn is driving demand for its transportation, i.e. tankers. We've seen mass vaccine um, vaccination campaigns allowing oil consumption to increase in the Europe and the US, refinery utilization increasing in Europe as well. And both of these have driven uh, crude demand and owners have been able to pass on some of the rising bunker costs as well, with all these factors helping rates improve. So we have a situation here where the price of crude is rising whilst tanker rates are improving concurrently, breaking away from past correlation. And it's really leading this market into a new paradigm, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I see. And by the way, many tend to put their hopes on the boost of OPEC production, and you mentioned OPEC, and it's in a sense that we will have more crude heating the water and therefore more torn mile demand for tankers. My concern when I hear such opinions is that the core of crude demand is still in Asia, and Middle East to Asia is one of the shortest VLCC routes. So how much really the OPEC's return could aid the freight? In terms of hopes lying with the boost of OPEC's production, I would say rightly so. Now, OPEC Plus plays an interesting game where they need to find the balance between a relatively high price and market share. I suspect the ideal price is probably around the $80 to $90 mark, 
but anything above starts hindering sales, which is why if we get closer to those levels and exceed them, we can expect OPEC plus to increase output relatively quickly to put a cap to to rising price of crude. And that has the potential to fuel a tanker market rally, as we know a strong market uh, ex-Middle East will also lead to higher freight rates for crude tankers loading in the Atlantic Basin, for example, and have that positive spillover effect. Now, whether an increase in Middle East to Asia crude flows really provides support to ton miles, I would say today, yes, that would absolutely be the case. And today is the important word here. Through our freight uh, data sets, we can see that ton miles for large crude tankers have actually remained fairly stable year to date. At the same time, output has decreased from the Middle East as OPEC sought to support the price of crude, and China has decreased its crude uh, purchased as the price of crude increased. At the same time, refinery maintenance in China was underway and their stocks still remain quite high. So how does that work? Well, we actually uncovered that this was compensated by an increase in purchases from India, amongst others, from areas of loading that were further away. So that really contributed to mitigating the impact of, of lesser volumes. And whilst crude from the Americas made up the bulk of that, about 15% of VLCCs to India loaded from Europe, with Yuan's Verdrop being a bestseller in the shopping cart. Which is why if today volumes increase from the Middle East, with all else remaining equal, we already have tankers utilized for longer on longer haul routes. We have the ton component of ton miles set to increase from the Middle East. And I think that would create an environment where a vessel supply squeeze, especially for VLCCs, is very likely and thus could be a positive catalyst for. for oh, sorry, let me just step in here for a second. So obviously we have uh, the uh, Middle East coming back. And like you said, we had some long haul trades uh, taking uh, or aiding the ton mile demand. But if OPEC comes back with all this production and considering it is a shorter voyage, wouldn't it just invite all of those buyers, for example, in India, like you mentioned, to just go back to buying more of the um, Middle East crude, and that would offset the ton mile demand gains from the longer haul routes? That's a good point. Actually, the Indian Middle East relationship is pretty interesting, where the reason they bought crude um, from other sources was because um, the Middle East had decreased its, its output. Um, and India saw that as a sort of act of defiance uh, in a time where they needed more crude. Mm. Now, we've seen recently the nomination of the chairman of Aramco on the board of Reliance. Um, right. And that probably signals uh, a warming up of that, of that relationship. So going forward, you're absolutely right. That could um, throw a spanner in the works. Okay. And so in this case, uh, what does OPEC coming back if it does? Because still, as, as we see, there is a lot of uncertainty regarding the OPEC meeting later uh, this week. But uh, let's say OPEC production comes back and we do see that boost in ton mile demand. Do you think it's going to be short-lived, all considered? So we have uh, initial boost when the market sentiment goes up and there's more crude actually hitting the water. But as soon as ton mile demand balances out, against the long-haul routes, it just bounces down again. Is that the case or not? I think if it goes hand-in-hand hand with a strong recovery in oil demand, and you know we are starting from, from the bottom here, and there's a lot of uh, potential for, for that to grow, then I think in that case, it wouldn't be short-lived. And I think that can really provide um, a strong catalyst for, for long-term fundamentals to, to increase. Mm -hmm. 
But again, when it comes to uh, oil demand, we still see, obviously, increase of uh, cases in quite a few parts of the world. There are opinions that, in fact, OPEC might not commit for production come back until probably August, so it is not any big, big commitment. So let's say we have OPEC, um, but let's say if we have OPEC plus coming back with all the production, but demand itself still stalls, right? Which could happen uh, naturally in our uncertain world. Would that, uh, what kind of impact would that have? In that scenario, obviously demand being impacted by, we've seen the rise of, of variants. Um, you know, as you mentioned, that could put a dent in, in complete economic recovery. I think in that case, OPEC would be pragmatic and um, not flood the market with with volumes. And and this in this case, we just have the same stable tanker market at the bottom of the zit, as it is right now. We wouldn't see much improvement. Yes, absolutely. Um, without that demand component recovering. Okay, talking about uh, different producers, uh, one has to mention Iran because obviously there's again some uh, cause to believe that they might be uh, coming back uh, later later this year, uh, and that would mean the um, both the comeback of Iranian crude and of course the Iranian fleet. What kind of impact would that have, you think, on the rates? Yeah, Iran is an interesting one. Um, you know, you're absolutely right. I think their production capacity and tanker fleets really remain closely watched by, by the shipping markets. Um, I don't believe, however, the fortunes of, of tanker markets, you know, are really tied to, to these variables. If tomorrow's sanctions were to be lifted, and that remains a big if, as time seems to be running out to, to reach an agreement before the inauguration of um, the new president, mm-hmm. we would probably experience more of a gradual increase of output that would be absorbed by the markets without a shock, in, in my opinion. Um, whether increasing crude and condensates exports out of Iran would be beneficial to tanker markets, I would tend to say yes, um, as I don't believe all these volumes would only be moved by, by Iranian tankers. Now, when it comes to the fleet, so the NITC fleet specifically, we've quantified it at 54 tankers here at Voltexa, with the majority being VLCCs. And about three-fifths of that fleet are currently involved in floating storage with a capacity of about 68 million barrels. It's important to point out how old this fleet is, with 50% above 15 years and 30% above 20 years. So most of these tankers wouldn't pass the stringent European charter requirements if they were to to enter the market again, and most likely would head to to scrapyards. So I don't believe it would tip the balance in terms of supply of of tonnage. But let's face it, not all um, charters or like not all terminals, not all not everyone is as stringent as maybe some others. Right. So uh, wouldn't those vessels, especially considering that they're older and that they can offer very competitive rates, still be able to find uh, some business, uh, maybe in other parts of the world, apart from Europe? That's very true. We've seen that charters in Asia that have less stringent requirements. Um, Now, once more, considering the size of the fleet, I'm not sure it would have a significant um, impact. I also think not all the tankers would return tomorrow to to the market, and it would be more of a drip feed um, situation with the majority remaining in in floating storage until all those barrels are are cleared out. In other words, no actual shocks or arrival, more uh, more of a small adjustment, if any, right? Exactly. No black swan event there. Okay. All right. So let's step back for a second. Uh, when we're talking about connection between crude and freight, uh, there is also 
always the end goal of marine fuels. And I think you mentioned that brief, uh, briefly at the very beginning. And naturally, when the crude prices go up, so do the bunker prices, which does normally affect the earnings for ship owners. And with, well, relatively recent time or regulations in place, uh, the spread between the high sulfur fuel and low sulfur fuel uh, became quite important. And looking at the spread in Fujaira, it averaged around $115 around that um, uh, this year. And we recently had a client actually asking an interesting question, whether this affects utilization of scrubber-fitted vessels. In other words, when the spread is wider, do scrubber-fitted vessels get used more? And um, what does the actual uh, fleet utilization data tell you? I had to smile there when you mentioned relatively recent timer regulations, because it does feel like a very long time ago (laughs) that we used to to always talk about it. the data actually provides a very clear answer to, to that question. If we look at our utilization data for scrubber-fitted tankers, we clearly see an uptick from around October, November 2020 onwards, which is near perfectly correlated with the rise in HSFO, LSFO spreads at the same time across major bunkering hubs. Now, this clearly reflects the competitive edge of scrubber-fitted tankers in an environment of, of rising bunkers. And these are the dynamics that were expected once IMO 2020 had come into effect. But with the price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia sending the price of crude tumbling and bunkers following, there was little incentive to favor one fuel over the, the other. So as we return to a normal environment with normal in quotation marks, we should see more of this in, in tanker markets, bar any future regulations when it comes to pushing forward the decarbonization agenda in the industry. Okay, and continuing the topic of marine fuels, you mentioned at the beginning that ship owners have been able to pass on their costs um, to charters in terms of the higher freight rates. And uh, do you think that this is something that we um, are likely to see going forward? Because actually we spoke to uh, like quite a few ship owners recently, and they have had quite a few concerns regarding negative earnings uh, on on their vessels and specifically also struggling to pass on the marine fuels costs. I mean, does it depend on the um, uh, specific route, for example, where you are successful in um, or specific market segment or uh, size segment where ship owners can be successful in passing on those costs? Or this is more depending on whether they have a scrubber installed or not? Absolutely. So, I think you're clutching at straws if you know you expect freight rates to to rise in line with um, with bunker costs. I think it's easier for freight rates to experience an uptick uh, following a rise in bunker costs along shorter haul routes, uh, potentially you know your MRs, your Handys, your your Aframax tankers. On the longer haul trades, um, I think it's much more difficult, and which is why we're seeing also, for example, um, in Asia Pacific right now, there's actually a buildup of tonnage where tankers are refusing long-haul voyages because uh, of the fact that that would turn their, their earnings negative um, because of the cost of, uh, of bunkers today. So they privilege you know, more shorter-haul routes where we've witnessed a, a slight uptick in rates uh, mm-hmm. following that increase in, in bunkers. So realistically, very, very much a specific trade or vessel size dependent rather than the overall let's say, recovery of freight alongside the bunker costs, right? Exactly. Mm. So uh, all this considered, let's go back to the to the main topic. What would be your 
prognosis for the rest of 2021 in terms of ton mile demand, fleet utilization, therefore tanker rates? I personally expect, you know, the oil recovery to, to continue for the second half of the year. Um, we're still significantly below 2019 levels when it comes to, to seaborne volumes. So I think we have a significant scope to, to improve there. And I believe, you know, these two combined can lead to an increase in ton mile demand and, and fleet utilization for 2021, not just short term, but truly sustained. And therefore, tanker rates should follow and, you know, simply end a year higher to, to where we are today. Now, a small caveat being the fact we might still see a timid market during Q3, as we've seen China reduce their crude import quotas, for example, and variants once more do have the potential to, to derail any full economic recovery. Mm. But on the other hand, on the supply side, I also believe we have a few deadlines looming for all tankers to comply when it comes, for example, to ballast water management systems. Um, We've got overarching regulatory pressure as well, which will tighten the, the supply of ships. So we might see scrapping pick up, um, especially as scrap prices are much stronger nowadays. So for those reasons, I remain quite upbeat about tanker prospects for the rest of 2021. Uh, let's touch briefly on the ballast water management uh, system issue. What exactly is the deadline and how it might encourage more scrapping or force more scrapping? So the reason it might force more scrapping, um, and this comes into effect next year, is the fact that ships, when they next do the, the next survey, they're going to need to have um, these systems that comply with, with the regulations. Um, and the reality is that a lot of them don't. Mm. Now, at that point in time, the owner will have a, will have a decision to make. Does he in, you know, install that system at a very high cost? Um, he'll have to weigh the, the potential earnings going forward for, for his tanker. And the much older tonnage in the fleet, they're going to have a hard time justifying um, incurring that cost. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot of these tankers naturally head to, to the scrapyard um, simply because the economics won't make sense. As far as the costs go, is it really as such of a high, uh, high cost to justify completely losing the asset and not being able to engage the um, the spot market? And usually, as we've seen before, the ballast water management systems or like the regulations around it, there are different caveats which ship owners can utilize to go around them. I mean, any of those factors might come into play? So I believe the cost ranges from between $500,000 to about $3 million um, dollars per ship. So once more, it's going to depend on the size of your vessel. It's going to depend on, uh, on the age of your vessel, um, whether you can invest in certain technologies to, to mitigate that. Um, I think it's going to be a case-by-case -case basis. Okay. And for the um, uh, general age of the vessel, let's put it, let's put it this way. Uh, it again depends on the segment, but if we go back to the main uh, crude carriers, which would be VLCCs, the fleet doesn't seem that old, right? So we're talking about the average age of the fleet probably around um, 10 years old, with the um, average scrapping age being closer to 20 or above 20. I mean, is there really that much of potential for scrapping when it comes just to the age of the vessel? There actually is because what we've seen is by breaking down um, the VRCC fleet and seeing uh, how they, they operate based on their age, mm. we've seen tankers of 22, 23, 24 years old 
that are actually being used more often than tankers that are 17, 18, because of the existence of those shadow trades um, involving Venezuela slash, slash Iran. So these are really the, the vessels that could potentially undercut um, others in the market, and which, if they were to be scrapped, uh, would help lift the, the rest of the category. Interesting. Okay, thank you very much, Arthur, and I appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us. That was very interesting. And thanks to everyone who listened. If you would like to get more insight into shipping markets, do check out the Argos Freight Service, which includes prices, news, analysis, and a bunch of special bonus content. Also, for more free content like this, visit the Weight of Freight page on argusmedia.com, where we publish regular podcasts, blogs, and webinars. Till next time, and keep safe.